I was reading uh, a little uh, post somewhere uh, after she passed, and uh, there was a quote in it that she gave in her Christmas address in, the year, in December of 2020, 22 years ago, and she said this, and she's been all along very open about her faith in Christ. It seems to be very genuine. She said, for me, the leadership of Christ, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. <clears throat> That's really something for a world leader to say that to the whole world uh, on that occasion. The teachings of Christ and her, this is maybe the bigger one, my accountability to God guides me. Uh, very important. What a, what a, a gift that, that is, that someone would speak that way in her Christmas address to the whole world. And then Peter Gregg writes about that. He says, almost 22 years after that speech, <clears throat> more than 70 since Elizabeth became queen, we witness contemporary leaders failing and falling all around us at an unprecedented rate. Notions of duty, of promise keeping, and accountability to God can seem antiquated and even naive. But at such a time, Queen Elizabeth's lifelong example of consistency in private faith and integrity in public service is both startling and inspiring. <clears throat> Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we pause just for a moment to note an important time, an important event in our times, and we thank you for this remarkable woman who was Queen Elizabeth II and who displayed her faith in Christ, who displayed impeccable character, who was faithful to her post, who was a woman of integrity, and who was a steady rock to look through, often through turbulent times. We thank you for the gift that she was to us. May she enjoy fellowship with you forevermore. And now we pray for Charles, who has become the king, <clears throat> that your hand would be upon him and that you would give him wisdom and courage and a sense of his own accountability to God in the days going forward. We pray in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 20. We've been, uh, we're going to start encouraging uh, everyone to bring your Bibles to church. <clears throat> we can get out of that habit sometimes. And the scripture does appear on the screen behind me. And, uh, <clears throat> but, uh, you don't have to, but really encourage you to bring your Bible to church. Sometimes just looking at it on the page, bring a pen, bring a pencil, mark your Bible up. I, I encourage people to make a real mess out of your Bibles, like just lines and circles and arrows and stars all over the place. It's a holy book, but uh, that doesn't mean you can't mark it up. So uh, <clears throat> just so you can find things and note important things. So uh, I, uh, we do encourage you to bring your Bibles and follow along. Uh, and uh, I'll be reading a passage out of 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So this kind of, uh, this before the book of Psalms, Chronicles, sometimes it's a little hard to find these ones. There's uh, Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and then Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, etc. Uh, 
And so uh, we'll, we'll look there in a moment at a, at a passage. Last week, uh, <coughs> we talked about church growth. I, I think we would all say, of course we want to be a church that's growing. We, we do. Um, growth is wonderful. Growth is a sign of life, right? And uh, so we want to be a church that's growing. But last week, we established two things. Number one was that it's God who causes the church to grow. Not us, not our ingenuity, not our intelligence, not our experience. We do work through which God works. That's true. But he causes the growth. Jesus said, I will build my church. Uh, and he builds it on the truth of the confession of who he is and what he has done in the gospel. And, uh, <clears throat> but, uh, and, and the second point from last week was that uh, it's the type of growth that, that we, we want God to do in our church and that we will asking, be asking him for. And that is not primarily numerical growth. It is growth of personhood, growth in Christ, growth in wisdom, growth in patience, growth in faith, growth in humility, growth in hunger for God. If we are growing in those things from person to person to person, numerical growth will take care of itself. God will cause his church to grow. He will cause such a living thing to grow and bear fruit. So let's remember that as we, as we go forward. As I ended last week, I said I have to talk about prayer because there's such a, a uh, vital link between a church's praying and its prayer life, which is its dependence on God, and health in Chronicles 20. <clears throat> you can tell your friends the pastor was drinking a lot this morning. Um, <clears throat> I've been fighting a cold all week and just trying to make sure my voice makes it through the morning. Second Chronicles 20. So uh, <clears throat> this is during the reign of a fellow named King Jehoshaphat. And uh, Jehoshaphat was a good guy. He was a good king. He, he slipped up a little here and there. You can read some of his reign in his life in Second Chronicles and uh, also some of it in, uh, I believe, First Kings. Uh, but uh, he, was, he was a good man, trying his best. But uh, he faced a particular challenge here in Second Chronicles chapter 20. We have it recorded for us. And the challenge was is that all of a sudden, one, t one day, uh, some people came to the king and they said, uh, King, uh, there's a huge army gathering on our borders and they're about to invade us. They're Moabites, uh, Munites, Ammonites, and uh, none of them are here to go to the market. They're, they're here to invade and, and rob us and rape us and, and everything possible. And uh, when, you, when you had an army gathering on your borders, it was life and death. Uh, it would be like uh, an army like the Russians gathering on the border of Ukraine and, uh, and, and the, the angst that would seize a population when you see someone bigger and stronger than you moving against you. And so we'll pick it up here at verse 20, verse 1, sorry. Second Chronicles 20, verse 1. <clears throat> After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Munites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is En Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. So what do you do when you get news like this? Well, you could say, get all the generals together. We need to have a conference. We need to train more fighters. We need to draw up terms of peace. We need to sue for peace. You know, all these things they did. None of that. 
They resolved to seek God, which is uh, quite a... that You can say, well, this story is going to be interesting. Verse 4, <clears throat> the people of Judah came together in response to the king's call to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Notice the words, seek and seek. Verse 5, then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said. And so now we have a, a record of the gist of Jehoshaphat's prayer at this moment of crisis and fear and uh, <clears throat> panic almost. So I'll read his prayer. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. He's just stating the facts here. But sometimes we just need to hear these truths at a moment like this. Verse 7, O our God, <clears throat> did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? The answer is yes. They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. This was a promise we made long ago. Looks like we're going to have to come through with this now. But we, we have promised we will seek you in a time of distress. Verse 10. But now there are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. That was a long time ago. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. <clears throat> See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. <clears throat> so he's just reviewing a bit of context and a bit of history here. Israel had never done these nations any wrong. That's what he's saying. We could have invaded them when we were coming out of Egypt, but we didn't, because you wouldn't let us. And, uh, and so why are they invading us? That, that's the gist of what he's... he's Verse 12. In, in light of that context, here's the, 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 the kernel, the core of, of Jehoshaphat's prayer. Hear, hear it carefully. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. I read it again. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. That's how you pray. <clears throat> Notice the confession here. We are weak. We have no power to face this vast army. We don't have a chance. The second thing he confesses is, we don't have a clue. We don't know what to do. There, there doesn't seem to be anything we can do. We humans don't like admitting we don't know what to do, right? <clears throat> you know, like when Kathy, my wife, asked me a question or something, I hate saying I don't know. Like, it's, it's great for a husband to have an answer, right? But half the time, I'm, well, I don't know. You know, it's, 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 it's hard to admit you don't know. And yet the king here who's supposed to lead all of these people is admitting we don't know what to do. But he says one more thing, and that is, but our eyes are on you. 
just as a little side note of history, you might know the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, an amazing, strong Christian uh, during World War II, who stood up in Germany on behalf of the confessing church against the Nazis. And right just days before the end of the war, the Nazis shot him to death in a firing squad. And it was a great loss to the Christian world. And there was a service held for him in London, England, actually, shortly after that. And the text for the sermon was, in, in the times that they were in, in England, uh, at the end of the war, the war is still going on in, 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 uh, in, in, in the Pacific Theater. And uh, the text for the sermon was, Lord, we have no power to face this vast enemy coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We've just lost a great leader in the Christian church, but our eyes are on you. I use this verse. The next verse is also very important. So they've gathered together. Jehoshaphat has made this statement in his prayer. Verse 13, all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Imagine that moment. Imagine that scene. Everybody is there. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are gathered packed into this one place in Jerusalem before the temple, and they've just heard Jehoshaphat pray this prayer. But it's noted here, it's just noted particularly and specifically that all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. <clears throat> this is a poignant moment. What's remarkable here isn't how long Jehoshaphat prayed. And what's remarkable isn't how eloquently he prayed. What's remarkable is that they were all there to seek the Lord and to say amen to his prayer. That's really important. There was nothing more important for all the people of Israel to do on that day than to be there. There was nothing, nowhere that they had to be that day. There was no social event, no work event, no other event. It was top priority to be there in Jerusalem, and it says they were all there. Now what happens next is really good. Jehoshaphat has gathered the people. He has prayed his prayer. The climax of his prayer is we don't know what to do. We have no power, but our eyes are on you, Lord. Everybody is there in silence. And then the silence is broken. Verse 14. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. Now you all know who Jehaziel is, right? None of us do. We've never heard of this guy before. I mean, you might think some superstar prophet might have had something to say at this point, but Jehaziel comes out of nowhere. This is the only time his name is ever mentioned in the Bible. He's not mentioned later on. You remember Jehaziel? No, he's forgotten. So I want, I want to honor Jehaziel this morning for standing up and speaking out on this occasion. We, we, we don't know anything about him other than this moment in history. But the reason we know about him is because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's why. And we as a people need to be open for the Spirit to move us and speak through us and come upon us in moments of crisis and to pray and to encourage one another in the Lord. Let's hear what Jehaziel had to say. 
Now, he, he was just sort of a, a I think, a blue-collar, lunch-bucket-carrying sort of a guy. He uh, was a relative of Asaph, and Asaph, there's a family history here, and Asaph was a worship leader, I believe, uh, wrote some psalms in, in the scriptures. We don't know anything about Jehaziel, uh, whether he was uh, on the worship team in Israel or, or, or what? Was he just a farmer? Don't know. Doesn't seem to matter, does it? God can use anybody. So the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, and here's what he said. He speaks to the king, and he speaks to the whole nation. He said, verse 15, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. How often God begins his instructions to his people by telling them not to be afraid, because they were scared skinny. Don't be afraid, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. That's interesting. What do, you, what do you mean? You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah. And Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Second time he says this. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow. And the Lord will be with you. Wow. I could see everybody looking. Is, is, this, is this true? Is the, can we trust this guy? Is this really a message from God? If it is, this is amazing. But if it isn't, and this is what we do, we're toast. Like, you don't, you don't know what, what's, what's going on here. Remember, they didn't have any power. <clears throat> they said, we have no power, Jehoshaphat's prayer, to face this vast army. But now Jehaziel, God is telling them through Jehaziel, you not only have power, you've got me, and, uh, and I'm going to fight the battle for you. Secondly, in Jehoshaphat's prayer, he confessed, we don't know what to do. Uh, and, and here, God tells them exactly what to do. This is an answer to their prayer. And he tells them about their climbing up the pass, and you'll find them at the end of the gorge, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in our, our language, it might be, they'll be coming up Highway 6, and they'll be coming up Silver Creek, and you meet them down there by the library. You know, like something like that. that these were like real places in their, in their little world that they lived in. And uh, so now they know what to do, it's a strange thing, though. You go out, you take up your positions, you look like you're going to war, but you won't have to swing a sword. The battle is the Lord's. So having said, that's all, Jehosh that's all Jehaziel said. <clears throat> now, what do you do? What does the whole gathering do? I can see them all standing there in silence, having heard these words, and they're sort of saying, okay, now what do we do? Now what do we do? Uh, oh, let's see what Jehoshaphat is doing. So they all looked over to find Jehoshaphat to see what his response would be, and they can't see him. I'm, I'm making this little part up here. They can't see him. And they're, where, where, where is he? Did he run away? And then someone says, look, look, look. And they look, and Jehoshaphat's on the ground, face down on the ground before God, totally surrendered to this message. And so what do the people do? Well, we need leaders. The nation needs a leader. The church needs leaders uh, who the people can look to and also follow those leaders. So the people, well, let's read it. 
Verse 18, Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up, praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. <clears throat> Notice the progression here. We have God speaking through a prophet. The king responds to the prophet and bows down. The people respond to the king and they bow down. And uh, everybody's buying into this. Jehoshaphat had total buy-in and the people were following him. And the people, here's an interesting little thing. The people are there now on the ground before God. And, uh, but uh, are they all buying in or are they all just sort of a mass get down and, and, and worship sort of thing? And uh, there's, there's another little element here that's added in things. They stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So um, <clears throat> I think sometimes in a church, let's just apply this even right directly to ourselves. We have God, we have people speaking to us, we have leaders who are following and worshiping and, 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 and buying in, but you know what you need in the congregation? You need individuals who will stand up and sing and worship and encourage the faith of their brethren. Because that's what the Levites were doing here. They stood up and said, this is great, let's sing. And, and they started worshiping God. And uh, I, I want to put in a word here for the power of peers to stir one another's faith. And I want to challenge you to stir the faith of your brethren and your sisters some, at, at times in life. To, to give a word, don't depend all on the pastor to do all the faith stirring, because it ain't going to work. We need to take ownership of our faith and speak faith into the lives of one another, just like the Levites did. Uh, they stood up and said, let's praise this great God. And, and it says, uh, well, I, I noticed they took initiative. They stood up. Nobody told them to. I noticed they modeled faith in their worship. And I, lastly, I noticed they modeled enthusiasm because it said they sang with a very loud voice. It wasn't like, come by ah. It was, it was like really loud. And it was worship and praise, and it sort of completed the circle, you might say. And so from Jehoshaphat's prayer of, of just naked faith and desperation, we don't know what to do, we have no power, our eyes are on you, to, to this moment where there's something amazing happening in the nation of of Judah and Jerusalem. I can think of the power of, of peers in my own life, uh, who at certain points in my life, I, I knew what, what speakers and leaders and pastors were saying. This was back in my mid-20s. Uh, and, and I could hear them, but, but they were, they were kind of like at arm's length from me. They were, they were a little bit removed. I would, I would justify what they were, I would rationalize what they were saying. They were saying all the right things, but I would say, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, but that's, that's a pastor, that's my dad, that's, that's this person. Somehow you sort of minimize it, but what I could not ignore was when, was when some of my buddies got on fire for God. I had a, I had a friend who, who was like a Bible-reading maniac, <laughs> and that's all he did was read his Bible. We went fishing once, and, and, and I, I noticed he wasn't moving. And uh, we were out in a boat somewhere, and I looked over, and he wasn't even, he had his line in the water, but he had his, he was, I said, what are you reading? He says, Proverbs. This, this is great, John, listen to this. You know, and, uh, but, but it was my peer. 
Loving the scriptures, that rubs off. And we need to start rubbing off good things and faith and passion and hunger and, and all those things onto one another's lives. I knew another guy who was struggling to come out of, come out of a tailspin. And he, 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 he was trying to get there. And one of my other buddies, Rob, said to him, um, well, we, we need to pray together. And Bruce said, yeah, I guess we should. Rob said, I'll come over. What time do you start work? Eight o'clock. I'll come over seven o'clock Monday morning and we'll pray together. Bruce admitted, he said, I didn't think it would happen. Uh, he knew Rob and how much he liked to sleep. And uh, <laughs> he said, seven o'clock Monday morning, there was a knock at my door. And I, I, who could that be? I went and opened the door and it was Rob. Rob said, look, what are you here for? We're here to pray. And he said, we prayed. He said, see you tomorrow morning. And uh, he said, okay, Tuesday morning, 7 o'clock, Rob was there. He was there every day that week. Bruce said it changed my life. It got him past whatever was holding him back. A peer influencing another peer. You need to influence each other, and me too, and all of us mixed together. That's what I love about, you got, you got the prophet speaking out, doing his job, you've from God, you've got Jehoshaphat the king doing his job. The people are, are following along, probably wondering. And then the Levites rise up and begin to sing. And uh, I want, I'm not even going to read the rest of the story. It all turned out exactly as God said it would. You read it when you go home. Very interesting. All the enemies slaughtered each other, and Israel did not have to lay, lift a sword, just like God had said. So why are we going through this story? Because we don't have Ammonites on the borders of our, out there in the parking lot, invading our church. But we do have challenges as a church. I'm talking about us, Grace Community Church. We have decisions to make. We have leadership to hire. We have to figure some things out. We have ministry positions that need to be filled. We've got gaps in our Grace Kids program, gaps in our care program, gaps all over the place. Uh, and uh, and, and, and uh, we've come through two difficult years, COVID and leadership changes that have disturbed and upset us, and we're in a vulnerable place. And I think our church needs to pray more than we've ever prayed before. We need to say, God, we don't know what to do in some ways. That's not a bad admission to make. We, we also need to say, and Lord, we lack power. <clears throat> One of you has been telling me quite regularly, John, we're weak. We're weak. But in weakness, God's power can be released. It's not a bad thing. But we must admit, we don't know, we, we don't have the, the power to do this. And then we need to put our eyes on God. So here's what I'm suggesting as we close off here. I've uh, run this through the uh, Elder Advisory Board and uh, let some of the leadership board know and some of the worship of September, October, November, December. We have our normal church service, but uh, when the kids are released for Sunday school, instead of a sermon, we pray together as a congregation. It's difficult to get everybody together to pray. If I said, hey, folks, we're going to have a prayer time on Thursday night. It's, to, to date, it's been difficult to get the church to come to the prayer meeting. I used to have a shop teacher, and he used to say to us, boys, <clears throat> if you can't get the mountain to come to Muhammad, 
then we'll get Muhammad to go to the mountain. That's not in the Bible. But uh, <laughs> I think what he meant was we need a new approach to our problem. And so if we can't get the church to come to the prayer meeting, we'll bring the prayer meeting to the church on Sunday morning, the last Sunday of each month from now to the end of the year. What happens at the end of the year? We'll ask God and evaluate at that point. But we need to pray all together. Because we're a family, we're a church, and, uh, and we need to hear each other's prayers. We need to hear each other's faith being expressed. We need to hear each other call upon God. I can see some of you just sitting there trembling saying, I don't know how to pray out loud. It scares me to death. Let me assure you, no one will be forced to do anything that you, you're not comfortable doing. No one will be forced to pray out loud. We will have some people assigned to pray prayers out loud with the mic, and we will listen and we will say amen. But we will not be circling the chairs. You know how sometimes Christians pray and they circle the chairs and, and everybody's expected to go around the circle. Not going to do that. I want you to experience prayer together as a church and that, that it would be wonderful, not scary or something to be avoided. I'll tell you more next week. We're going to talk more about prayer next week. But I think we need to set aside some special times of prayer as a church to seek the Lord and to trust that he will guide us through this. During our prayer times, we'll have some worship songs sprinkled in, maybe some little tiny mini sermons from me or different ones here in the congregation to encourage our faith in prayer. That's what's coming up. The great Eugene Peterson, <coughs> who uh, was the translator of the, uh, uh, the message, that translation of the Bible called The Message. Eugene Peterson has passed away. But um, he was once asked, what do you think is your most important duty as a pastor? What's your top priority as a pastor? And his answer was to teach my people to pray. It's a strange answer at first. We need to think about that answer. He didn't say to teach my people how to pray. He didn't say teach my people that they should pray. He said teach my people to pray, to actually do it. And it's time for us to take some steps forward there as a church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these moments to consider this amazing story of how you acted and worked through a moment of absolute surrender and prayer in the Old Testament, in Jehoshaphat's reign. And we ask simply as we close down now that you would teach us here at Grace Community Church to pray. Amen. Please stand. i
sin runs deep, your grace is more. 